It's really good to be back up here in Mitchell Hall. As you can tell, we're still fine-tuning some systems at Holy Communion, uh, but it is good to be back in the church and back in Mitchell Hall for the forum. Um, I'm really glad, as well as we kick off this new liturgical year, uh, to welcome back a good friend uh, and one of our favorite presenters around here, the Reverend Dr. Adam Ployd. We've had Adam at the beginning of Advent for a couple of years now. Uh, you can go back up online and watch and listen to a couple of his previous presentations about Advent, and I really do encourage you to do so. Uh, he's funny and engaging and has a lot to say. But as we were talking about what we might want to invite Adam to talk about this year, an idea came to Adam that I thought was just brilliant. Since we've sort of covered in previous years sort of what is Advent, what is the history, uh, where do we get this, you know, the ways that we do some of the celebrations of Christmas, Adam came up with the idea of speaking about one of the ways we use scripture, particularly in this time of year in the church. And I'm going to let him talk about his topic uh, but I was really intrigued. I said, I, I want to stick around for that conversation because it's something that bothers me every year. Uh, Dr. Adam Ployd is, we've had a number of students at Eden Seminary from Holy Communion, and I can tell you from the students that we've had, uh, he is one of the most beloved professors for his teaching at Eden Seminary. Uh, he's also a prolific publisher and has all of those great scholastic um, pieces to his resume, to his CV, but I think it matters more than a lot of times institutions count it when somebody is a good teacher, when they're funny, when they're engaging. Uh, that's the reason the church keeps inviting somebody back. Uh, so will you help me welcome the Reverend Dr. Adam Ploy? Mike, yeah. yeah. You said yes and then I will. Good morning. morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. All right, good. Happy Advent. Happy Advent. This uh, coming to Holy Communion, as Mike said, has become one of my favorite Advent traditions. It may be my only Advent tradition. Uh, we don't really have Advent traditions, but I'm happy to have this as one. Uh, and today, what I would like to talk about since Advent is a time of anticipation, right? Where we are anticipating the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus. I want to ask this question. Does the Hebrew Bible, what Christians often refer to as the Old Testament, does it anticipate Jesus? We often read it as if it does. But I think it's worth taking a moment to ask what it means to read the text in that way and whether it is theologically and ethically responsible to do so. So, first off, I'd like to hear from y'all just a little bit of what your general response to that question is. Does the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament anticipate Jesus? Thoughts? Meh. Meh. Okay, that's fair. Others? You don't have to be a rector's answer. My 
do for the next couple minutes. Mike, remind me how much time I have. You have until about an hour. Okay, great. 45 sounds great. If you take out your sheet, I apologize that it's in 12 point font, but what are you going to do? Um, I want to walk through some of these texts that the New Testament texts all come from the book of to the nativity, to the birth of Christ and other events around that, that we think about during Advent and during Christmas and in the weeks after Christmas. And Matthew is the gospel most likely to every other verse go, and by the way, the thing I just said is a fulfillment of this prophecy. Then he'll go for another verse and he'll say, and this thing is also a fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, half the book of Matthew is him plagiarizing the Old Testament. Um, so he basically had a word count for his editor. He couldn't meet that word count, so he threw in a bunch of Old Testament. Uh, that might not be the official scholarly consensus. So I'm just going to walk through these passages. But at the end of it, I'm going to ask you what you noticed about them. And there's no right answer here. This is just what stands out to you. But I want to give you fair warning that I'm going to ask you that. So beginning with Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, 
He says, and this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. So we're talking about the virgin uh, conception and birth. The problem with Matthew is that he'll tell you it came through the prophet, but he'll never tell you which one. So when you're preparing a presentation, you have to use Google to remind yourself who said it. In this case, it comes from Isaiah chapter 7, where the prophet Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Moving to Matthew 2. If you notice something there, we'll come back to it. Moving to Matthew 2, verses 3 through 6. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Uh, For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Again, we have this generic, this comes from the prophet. In this case, it is the prophet Micah, chapter 5, Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origins is from of old, from ancient days. So you have here the story of um, Herod, the king of the, the literal king of the Jews, uh, being told by The three magi, actually it just says the magi, it never says three, there are just three gifts, so we make assumptions. But, being told by the magi that the king of the Jews had been born, and so he's a little worried about this, and he wants to know where, and it's Bethlehem, and they're getting this from Micah. Matthew 2 in the context of Herod killing all the babies that were born in that region, in that time. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Again, generic the prophet, Here we have Hosea the prophet, 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Just two more. Matthew 2.16-18. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Thank you, Matthew, for naming your sources. (laughs) A voice was heard in Ramah, 
I'm sorry, thus, sorry, I was reading the, I was skipping ahead. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Here, Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Finally, Matthew 2. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that when he, what had been spoken through the prophets might, had been, might be fulfilled, namely, he will be called a Nazarene. And if anyone can find where that is in the prophets, you get an A. It basically doesn't exist, but that's another issue. So we went through all of these fairly quickly, so I want to pause and simply ask you, what did you notice? What stood out for you? Yes, please. will give you a sign, look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. That's two verses, no, one verse. What's the chapter around that? What's going on in Isaiah? What is he talking about? Why does Israel need this sign? What does the significance of that sign mean in its cultural context? This is the way that we are taught to read. I think it's personally Not necessarily dependent 
on its immediate context. Now, for us, that's problematic for various for various reasons. You know, maybe taking it out of context is a distortion, a sort of twisting of Scripture to serve your own ends. Other things don't notice. Something significantly different. Yeah, David. All right. So the Isaiah text coming from the Hebrew says a young woman, whereas the New Testament, writing in Greek, the Matthew text says a virgin. And you might be aware that that has had a significant impact on the development of Christian theology. Now, here's the thing. There's a reason that's different. You're talking about the Septuagint. I'm getting there. Okay. You want to go? Well, 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 there were two, there are two authoritative versions of the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm -hmm. One being the Hebrew text, the other being the And so when they encountered 
Well, we're done. I am. I am going to. So, what Bob has offered that I want to highlight is the idea and the reality that the text that was used by most elite Jews, that is, those who would be doing the writing and the interpretation of Scripture, was primarily a Greek text called the Septuagint. Now, in this context, most Jews within Judea would have spoken Aramaic on a daily basis, but when they're doing official things and elite cultural things like writing gospels, reading and interpreting fancy historical texts, they're going to do it primarily in Greek. And as Bob said, when you begin translating the Hebrew into Greek, there's some slippage in meaning. So that you go from a Hebrew word that most clearly means just a young woman with no, sta no statement about her sexual status to a Greek term that is ambiguous. That very much has to do with virginity, but can also just be a young woman. So it gets picked up by the early Christians because they're reading the text in Greek. You might have noticed that a lot of the Old Testament prophetic texts that Matthew is drawing on don't word for word fit with what Matthew quotes. Several things matter here. One, there is no stable text yet. Even the Septuagint has various versions. And there certainly is no stable Hebrew text. That actually doesn't develop an authoritative version of it for a few centuries. So, the text isn't stable. So Matthew may just be reading a particular version that doesn't line up with the scholarly versions that the translators of the newer Bystander version are using. But also, Matthew may not be looking at the text. Memory was a lot stronger in the ancient world because it was exercised a lot more. It was how we learned things a lot more than the way we do. And so, for instance, this just occurred to me, how many of you had to learn times tables, right? How many of you can still do it, at least up to 10? Right? That's a good amount. Um, I love that, by the way. I lost that. Uh, but how many of you had to read, um, say, portions of the Odyssey? Okay, bad choice. No, that's good. Okay. How many of you can recite that? In the ancient world, you would be, you would be expected to be able to cite the Odyssey portions of it the same way you would be able to know your time tables now. So Matthew may not have a text in front of him. He may just be saying, oh yeah, the prophet says this. And so a word gets changed. So I had a point and if any of you know what it was 
I did see some hands, so I'm going to dodge my lack of a point and go to the hand over here. Uh, I read Google's book, How to Read the Bible. Okay. It takes every line, every sentence, and this is the way the old scholars yeah. interpret it, and this is the way the modern ones, and well, the, the language was, was written differently. They didn't have verbs in those days, and they, yeah. uh, they didn't put periods in. Yeah. some of them. And so he's not necessarily pointing to random texts 
right, and saying, uh, yeah, this, this is about Jesus, sure, let's go with that. That's the ticket. But for at least some of these, he's most likely pointing to texts, passages, that have already been established as keys to understanding what Messiah means. Yes, please. about what we've read and its significance. Does the Hebrew Bible anticipate Jesus? Let's begin with no. And why we might go to no. A lot of which you've named. First, it's bad, lazy reading. You're not looking at the context. You're you're taking sentences, at best, a paragraph, moving them out of the larger context and saying, look, this means what we say it means. Related to that, maybe it's bad history, by which I mean, in its reading of the text, it doesn't ask what does this mean to the original authors in the original context? So it's similar to what I said about context and bad reading, but instead of the textual context, we'll talk, we're talking about the historical cultural context, another way that we are trained to read. But I think the most important way and, or reason that we should be cautious, at least, in the way we find Jesus in the Old Testament are issues of anti-Semitism. Because, on the one hand, the earliest Christians are Jews competing with other Jews over Jewish scripture. But very quickly, the church becomes much more defined by Gentiles. And the language used to claim the Old Testament as anticipating or pointing towards Jesus quickly becomes not just, oh, we're Jews arguing with each other, but anti-Jewish. Because they would say, you don't even know how to read your own text. 
And the language is very vitriolic, very nasty. And it goes, not only do you not know how to read your own text, but because you didn't know how to read your own text, when the Messiah came, you rejected and killed him. And the blood of God's Son is on your head. And we know the painful legacy of that sort of rhetoric. Right? What begins as sort of a competition among Jews and then becomes a religious competition between Christians and Jews quickly becomes an ethnic competition between Jews and non-Jews where Jews are depicted not just as religiously different but as demonic as somehow subhuman, as somehow hiding horns under their garments, right? These are the images that are used that then promote or allow for things like the Holocaust to happen. So historically, we can draw a line from the way in which the Hebrew Bible becomes appropriated by Christians through anti-Jewish rhetoric on into straight-up anti-Semitism and the violence associated with that not only in the 40s, but still today. So that's the argument for maybe no. Maybe it's actually doing violence to the text to go that far. But what about yes? As we've already said, and this to me is sort of my uh, most important theme, but because y'all already named it so well, I want to go here first. The original Christians were reading Scripture, uh, reading the Old Testament in uh, Greek. So they're getting particular ways of reading it. Two, they are Jews who see themselves, at first at least, as simply part of a larger Jewish competition over what it means to be Jewish and what it means to read the Hebrew texts, even if it is in Greek. So there's something about the origins of Christianity that says, yes, it gets abused down the line for sure, but it's so essential to what it means to be Christian that if we cut it out entirely, then we lose connection with our Jewish origins, which can sometimes do more violence and promote anti-Semitism even more. There's a reason that over the last hundred years, it's been emphasized that Jesus was a Jew. It's because we often forget that Jesus and the early Christians are part of that milieu. And when we forget that, it's easier to promote anti-Semitic ideas. But there are a couple other reasons I think it's important to at least be open 
to the idea of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. One, continuity. If Jesus is in no way in the Old Testament, what is the relationship between it and him? Now, there are good ways of answering that. But, one of the benefits of seeing Jesus or anticipating Jesus through the Old Testament is there's a certain continuity between the religion of the Jews and the religion of Christianity, between one text and the other, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Raise your hand if you think that God created the world. Good enough. For a while in the early centuries, that was up for grabs in early Christianity. It was unclear. Why was it unclear? Well, have you seen the world? What kind of God creates a world like that? Have you seen what happens to humans as we grow older or as we get injured? Our bodies are really unreliable. Have you seen the way in which evil seems to go unpunished? So, there are movements associated with what we call Gnosticism that say, no, the God who created this world is a lesser God. Kind of a either stupid or just not very competent God. And the true God, the one whom Jesus calls Father, transcends that deity and is perfect and beyond all that. However, what this means is the God of creation is either bad, evil, or just incompetent. And that's the God revealed in the Old Testament. Is the creator God. The God who enters into covenant with Israel. And so, by that logic, many of these groups said, we have to throw out all of the Old Testament. We have to reject it as completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the most important moves that the early church made was to take a stand and say, no, there is continuity between the Old and New Testament. The same God who created the world, the same God who entered into covenant with Israel, is the same God who sent God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's part they would say, of one story. And there are ways to pick that apart in ways we might want to. But the benefit of it is, again, it doesn't reject as something lesser the Jewish religion. But it maintains 
that Christianity is in continuity to it. With it? Continuity with it. Now, of course, one of the problems there is that it's very easy to move from continuity to supersessionism. Supersessionism is the idea that we aren't simply in continuity with the God of Israel and the people of Israel and the fulfillment of prophecy, but we take the place of Israel. God has rejected Israel, this idea goes, and rejected the Jewish people and put Christians in their place. Now, obviously, this is dangerous, dangerous theology. And so, continuity need not be seen as supersessionism, I believe. And I think if we go back to this idea that the earliest Christians were Jews arguing with other Jews about how to interpret their scriptures, we see how the continuity is important to them because this is where they see Christ. Ultimately, I think, the reason they see Christ in the Old Testament is not because of any amazing reading skills, though they have those. It's because of the Christ event itself. Sometimes something happens that completely reorients how you see the world. My colleague, Dr. Laurel Kef Taylor, has a great analogy for this. She says, it's like when you're in the very beginning of a romantic relationship and everything just reminds you of them. Like, oh my gosh, did you hear that song on the radio? They are sick. It's just, it's like how we are with each other, you know. Did you, oh, did you see that puppy? It's just as cute as he is. Whatever it is, you see them everywhere. Similar sorts of things are happening, I think, with the Old Testament within this larger interpretive context. So what's the answer? Can we say that the Old Testament anticipates Jesus? I think the answer is, as, my, as uh, Mike put it earlier, meh. <laughs> but to flesh out that idea, I would say yes via faith, not history. What I mean is, if we are responsible readers of texts. We have to admit that the original context, both textually and culturally, does not as clearly point to the person of Jesus as someone like Matthew makes it seem. It is in no way the obvious meaning. And so we can't say, oh look, these people uh, didn't recognize its true meaning because we are changing its meaning because of Christ. So history and context, we can't make that claim, I don't think, that it's going to get us there because it's just not, I don't think, if you're a careful reader. But by faith, by our own experience of Jesus, 
like the new person in a romantic relationship, seeing their beloved everywhere, can come to see Jesus in these texts. We can come to affirm that the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Israelites, is the same God who sends Jesus. We can come to affirm that it is a faithful reading of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. Faithful, not necessarily historical, but faithful to see it as pointing to what we believe to be the fulfillment of God's work in the world. Who would culturally appropriate 
historically defined the nature of Jesus and say, no, it's because the Hebrew scriptures have said it this way yeah. that we believe that this person is Messiah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You begin to have pushback and you begin to have a version of what we might call the culture wars exactly. uh, in that Enlightenment period. Thanking Dr. Adam Floyd for his.